So waking up from a nap in a public setting can be a rather embarrassing episode, right? I'm not making a prophetic utterance about anything that's gonna happen in the next 30 minutes. I'm just saying that public awakenings can be awkward. Many of my most memorable accidental naps happened during my days in school when those brutal early mornings combined with the circadian rhythms of adolescence and my tendency to stay up too late at night, all of that led to some, some of those awkward moments. I remember falling asleep on the school bus with my head banging repeatedly on the frosted windows every time we went around a corner. I, I remember in, in 11th grade world cultures class when our teacher would turn off the lights and show really slow documentaries, unfortunately right after lunch, and I would jerk my head awake with my face resting in a small puddle of drool. In eighth grade construction class, our teacher had this big, thick yardstick that he would smash on the, decks, on the desk next to any sleeping students, sending them lurching skyward to the ceiling. I stayed awake in that class. And my all-time favorite moment, my 10th grade history teacher, let's call him Mr. Diener, primarily because his name is Mr. Diener. So Mr. Diener nodded off in the middle of his own lecture. He was standing behind his little podium talking about the Second World War and the pace of his talking slowed and slowed, crept to a crawl until he just stopped and his head lowered, his eyes closed and he was asleep. And we all looked around at each other and shrugged our shoulders like, what's the protocol here? And we just waited patiently. I mean, seriously, we did because, you know, if Mr. Diener was one of those teachers that nobody really liked, maybe the class goofball would have done something obnoxious with spitballs. But we loved Mr. Diener. He was a wonderful and kind man, approximately 117 years old, beloved by all, and genuinely a fabulous teacher, you know, when he was conscious. So we sat there quietly and waited. And after a few minutes, he snorted a bit, opened his eyes, and continued in the midst of his lecture right where he had left off, as if nothing had happened. Now that was a memorable reawakening. Now, in this 40 days of prayer journey that we're on with, with sisters and brothers from all across the United States Christian and Missionary Alliance, we're talking about reawakening, about emerging or rousing from sleep. We spent the first week asking God to reawaken within us a wonder at the splendor and majesty of the glory of Christ. We spent the second week asking God to reawaken within us a fuller understanding of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Last week, we asked God to reawaken within us a richer experience of the Spirit of Christ. And this week we have the opportunity and the invitation to ask God to reawaken within us a clear sense of the nature of the church of Christ. Now the word church means a lot of different things to a lot of different people and elicits many different, different feelings from different folks. In my case, I grew up deeply embedded in the life of the church of my upbringing. I went to church every Sunday morning and, and Sunday evenings and Wednesday evenings for whirlybirds. Before Awana, there was whirlybirds I can't imagine why they moved on from this. <laughs> I attended VBS and summer church camp. I did the whole thing and I loved it. I loved it. Now admittedly, I didn't always love it for the most spiritual and righteous of reasons. I mean, I remember sneaking into the church office on communion Sundays to munch down on the leftover communion bread. I remember hurrying through our Sunday school lesson as quickly as possible, just yelling out, Jesus, pray, read the Bible, go to church, because that's the answer to like 97% of the questions that we were asked. And so, so we could run over to the nearby basketball court and play until our parents picked us up. I remember being just tickled when I learned about the story of Ehud, the only Bible character specifically identified as left-handed, a charming little tidbit to this young Southpaw. And that's not the only great part of the story of Ehud to a middle school boy, look it up. 
Again, mixed motivations notwithstanding, I have always had deep affection for church. My parents didn't have to force me to go to church. As a Penn State college student, I, I walked from Atherton Hall across College Avenue to go to church by myself most Sunday mornings, even though it took me a few years to find a church where that experience was spiritually meaningful and not just habitual. The first full day of married life for Kate and me began by our attending Tim Keller's church in Manhattan where our honeymoon began. I love the church. Really, I always have. But I want to acknowledge as we press into our call of reawakening to the church of Christ that some of you have a very different story. Some of you have absolutely no point of reference for the church. You didn't grow up in the church, didn't attend or participate meaningfully in church life until recently. So your broad point of view is relatively void, maybe indifferent when it comes to church. Others of you have deeply negative feelings and experiences that are part of your journey with the church, maybe as a response to church people who've disappointed or hurt you. Maybe some of you have even experienced trauma or abuse in your interactions with the church. And there are no words that I can say to make that pain go away. I, I'm, I'm deeply sorry if the word or the idea or the mention of church isn't a positive one for you. That's the nature of a church that is composed of only and exclusively imperfect, broken people whose sins inevitably impact and often hurt others, as I know mine have. There are wounds, church wounds, that some of us carry. There's hope for those of you whose journey with the church is one of those painful stories. And I think we'll at least hint at some of that hope in this message today. But as common as those stories of pain are, I know that, that there are some here whose stories are more like mine, where the mere mention of the word church is like the mention of baseball or chocolate milk, a source of generally good feelings. Sure, it can go too long or it can turn a little sour, but in general, my soul warms when I think of the church. In fact, I've often wondered if my affection for the church is sometimes a subtle form of idolatry and that I can love the church, or at least my idealized vision of what the church could and should be, I can love that more than I love Jesus. That's idolatry, plain and simple, and I need to be mindful of that personal tendency that maybe I share with some of you. Now, when I was first pursuing pastoral ministry, when I was just working part-time on a church staff, having just begun seminary, I was immediately captivated by a phrase I heard from one of my early pastoral heroes at a church leadership conference. The church, the local church, is the hope of the world. The local church is the hope of the world. And while I've spent 20 plus years wrestling with exactly what that means, I do believe it's true because the local church is the means through which the glory of Christ is demonstrated and the life, death, and resurrection of Christ are proclaimed and the spirit of Christ is experienced. Indeed, when we get it even a little bit right and get out of the way and let God do his work in and through and despite us, the local church is indeed the hope of the world. But what is the church? What does that word even mean? Well, in preparing a message on the huge topic like the church of Christ, you may not be surprised to know that there is not a singular passage of scripture which fleshes out the marching orders of the church. There isn't a heading in our Bibles that says the church, colon, exactly what it is with instructions for how church people should do churching right. Accordingly, Without due diligence on our part, we can easily create our own sense of what we think the church is or should be, even with the best of intentions, but ultimately based on the structures and power centers of this world. I don't think that the church is a, a corporation or a social club or a social service organization or a political action committee or a social media influencer or a governmental advisory committee or an army or a think tank or a learning center or a partisan voting bloc. The church may have points of contact with some of these entities, but the church is not these things. One of the ways we can easily lose our way is by getting confused on this point, superimposing 
the motivations and the methodologies of the world upon the church. So to correct that errant tendency, we're left with the task of assembling the literally dozens and dozens of comments and phrases and descriptions and analogies for what the church is that are scattered all throughout the scriptures to ascertain what we are. To give us some focus today, four of the primary metaphors for the church occur in what has probably become my favorite book of the Bible, Ephesians. And so we're going to use those four metaphors as the framework for our simple reflection on reawakening to the church of Christ, offering us a sense of how God views us collectively. We've taken a much slower path through Ephesians, verse by verse, as recently as two summers ago. Today, we'll just isolate a few passages to highlight what will admittedly be somewhat remedial for some of us, as I'm not intending to offer anything earth-shattering or new today. For many, this will just be a series of reminders of what we, the church, are and already know about ourselves. But reminders can be good and even necessary at times. So let's jump into the first metaphor. It's found in Ephesians 1. Feel free to turn there if you'd like, or you can read along on the screens if you'd prefer. Here's what we read in Ephesians 1, verses 22 and 23. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. And so we see that the church is the body of Christ. The church is the body of Christ. God appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body. Now, as you may know, Ephesians 1 isn't the only place in the Bible where this metaphor is offered to us. We see the idea of the, of the, the church as the body of Christ fleshed out further, pun fully intended, in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, and it even occurs again in Ephesians 4 and Ephesians 5. To help us reawaken to this idea of the church as the body of Christ, I want to offer just one point of clarification about what that means for us when we think about the church. The entire biblical pitch, picture of the, the church as the body of Christ makes it explicitly clear that all of us are needed. Every part of the body is needed for the church to be what Christ intends it, what Christ intends us to be. Now you've all presumably been part of a team, a group, even a family, where someone wasn't really participating, wasn't fully engaged. It doesn't require much for a fully functioning body to break down and become less than it ought to be. I recently read an absolutely fascinating book by Hampton Sides about a piece of history that I knew absolutely nothing about before discovering the book. In the Kingdom of Ice details the epic Arctic expedition in the late 1870s of the USS Jeanette that was intended to find the North Pole. I could regale you with scintillating tidbits of historical trivia from this story for the rest of the day, but I suppose that's not why we're here. I will share simply one relevant thing, that one of the most fascinating parts of the book was reading about the way that the 33 men on that ship worked together over the course of a three-year journey of their expedition. It was this beautiful illustration of so many aspects of what it means to function as a body, as a unit, composed of distinctly different but interconnected parts. Everyone on that crew had a specific job. The captain, the navigator, the engineer, the surgeon, the ice pilot. If that's not the coolest job title ever, I don't know what is, the ice pilot. The meteorologist, the naturalist, the carpenter, the machinist, the bosun. Bosun, not boatswain as it is spelled, but bosun. I checked multiple online dictionaries to make sure that, that, that I said that right. Boston, never heard of that before in my life. The English language is so fascinating, isn't it? 
Okay, <clears throat> the hunters, the dog keepers, the sailors, everybody had a job, a critical job that contributed to the advancement of the purposes of the whole crew. And when one of those guys got sick, everybody felt their loss and had to muddle through by picking up the slack. And when one of those guys lost their focus or got grumpy or refused to do their job for any number of reasons, some more legitimate than others, everybody suffered. The crew was only able to function at their best when all 33 members of that crew were doing their designated job. And things got messy when people tried to do other people's jobs, jobs for which they were not equipped or trained or, or gifted. When someone who wasn't the captain tried to be the captain, that got ugly. And it was clear that there were no jobs that were unimportant. I don't know that I've ever before read such a powerful, evocative depiction of what it looks like for a group of people to collectively, collaboratively work together towards a shared purpose. That's the church. That's the body of Christ with Christ as the head. Our job titles are different. I'm not aware of a designated ice pilot or bosun in the life of the church, maybe to our great detriment, but we all have a part to play. And just to be clear, this has nothing to do with payroll. I'm talking about everybody who is part of the church, who's part of the body of Christ. That's why we're unapologetic in regularly putting in front of you a list of ministry needs of the church. We need more folks to help in the nursery. We need more folks to help with the media team. We need more folks to help on our prayer team. We need more folks to help as our coffee team starts serving that black nastiness again in the coming weeks. We need everybody to play the part, to fulfill the role, to take on the task to be the part of the body of Christ that you were created to be. If you're not doing that, maybe now is the time to step forward and get involved in some way. I, just to be clear on another front, I'm also not just talking about serving in official church ministries. There are countless ways outside the list of internal ministries of this church where you can be the hands and feet of Jesus as an extension of the body of Christ. The hope initiatives that we've been discussing over the past year are more externally focused opportunities for each of us to engage in the work of the body of Christ beyond simply running the internal ministries of this church. In a few months, we'll, we'll be hosting Out of the Cold again, an amazing opportunity to provide overnight accommodations here in our church lobby to the local homeless population. You can provide a meal or be a host or drive the van or help with set up or tear down. We continue to encourage you to be on mission in your neighborhood through the Front Yard Mission Initiative. And I just sat in on a meeting this week with the city church pastors talking with representatives from a Christian ministry who works with the federal government on refugee resettlement. We're likely to have some really significant opportunities to participate in that good work even in the coming weeks to help several Afghan refugee families to settle here in Happy Valley. Every one of those opportunities to extend love and compassion and to share the love of Jesus Plus, whatever opportunities God puts on your heart or puts in your path, they're not church ministries or even on the radar of anyone else in this congregation. Every single opportunity to love and serve and share and show Jesus to others is a place where you and I can be the body of Christ. As we read in Ephesians 1, he's the head, but we, his church, each of us are the body with a different part to play. And if we've become complacent or disengaged, let's reawaken to that calling and that invitation. Now, the next two metaphors are both found in a wonderful passage in Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, we'll start in verse, verse 17. Ephesians 2, verses 17 to 22. Here's what we read. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. 
Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So we can see here that the church is the temple of God. The church is the temple of God or or God's house. Ephesians 2 isn't isn't the only place in the Bible where this metaphor is offered to us. We, We see the idea of the church as the temple of God or God's house. We see that idea built out, pun fully intended, in 1 Corinthians 3 and Hebrews 3 and in 1 Peter 2. This passage in Ephesians 2 talks about building on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become this holy temple. And we are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Now, I think we need to understand and be clear that this is a metaphorical building, right? An image rather than an actual physical structure. In fact, when Jesus was on the cross and the curtain of the temple split in half, that moment was the moment when the very presence of God was essentially released to every place on earth, no longer contained in a specific building in a particular place. That event coincided with the dissemination of the presence of God into his new temple, his new dwelling place, the church. The people of God who would be collectively where he was. In Matthew 18, 20, Jesus said, where two or three gather in my name, that's where I am. The church, the gathering of God's people is the place where God is. Whether that is in a nice building like this, or on an online streaming platform, or in your community group, or wherever we might gather. That's the counterintuitive nature of this particular temple metaphor, that God is ultimately talking about his church in the exact opposite way we may be inclined to think when we think of the house of God or God's temple. It has literally nothing to do with a physical structure and everything to do with the people who comprise the church of Christ. Now we've made this point before, but I will reiterate that one of the gifts of this pandemic season, and I would argue that there have been many gifts if we're willing to look for them, but one of the gifts has been a very clear demonstration that we do not need to meet in this room to be the gathered people of God. This building is not the house of God. We, his people, are the house of God wherever we are. Now, this building is a wonderful tool that is used by the house of God, an amazing resource for which I am deeply grateful. But even as we thank God for this place, I continue to hear from folks who've been so blessed by the fact that we were forced very quickly to figure out how to leverage amazing technology and some really smart people to meaningfully gather without necessarily being in the same physical space whether it's Jane Crandall and Doreen joining us from Bullsburg, or it's the Wests and the Ackermans and the Hacks joining us from Foxdale, or, or, or it's the Fireballs joining us when they were out in Colorado spending time with their son as he battles cancer, or it's Barb Gaynor joining us from Tennessee while she stays with her family. What a beautiful reality we now have to demonstrate in very real terms the theological implications of Ephesians 2. Of course, that includes the several hundred of us who will gather in this sanctuary this morning and on any any given Sunday. But all of us, as we gather with Christ as the cornerstone, we form the very real house of God. And that, 
Among and within us is where the presence of God is. As verse 22 said, we are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. We, the church, a dwelling in which God lives, his house, his temple. That's the church of Christ. So the church is the body of Christ. The church is the house of God. But there's another beautiful metaphor tucked into this passage in Ephesians 2. As we just read a few minutes ago in Ephesians 2.19, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, members of the household of God. The church is the family of God. We are his family. And we might do well to invite God to remind us what it means that we, all of us within the church, are part of the family of God. Now, is this notion of the church as the family of God? Is this this little teensy point cherry-picked out of Ephesians 2? No, no, we see the idea of the church as the family of God birthed, pun fully intended, out of many scriptures. The notion of family is built right into the biblical description of Trinity with the Father and the Son. And the New Testament is filled with notions of adoption, references to brothers and sisters, children of God. In John 1.12, Jesus said, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. In 2 Corinthians 6.18, the apostle Paul wrote, I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. In 1 John 3.1, we read this, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. God has adopted us who have believed in him and received that gift of adoption into his family as his children, as his daughters and sons. Now I know that I can easily be distracted and distraught and discouraged by any number of challenges in my life, relational strains, societal ills that can cause me to lose heart, to feel lost or just generally disoriented from day to day. Recentering my eyes on my place in God's family is a critical opportunity and at times discipline to live life to the full as God intends for me for all of us. In the same way that the word church isn't necessarily a positive thing for some of us, the emotions that are stirred up when we talk about family is a mixed bag for some. The nature of our human families is that the sinful, broken, imperfect parts of each one of us compromise the purity of our family experience. When we're talking about being in God's family, that we can be called children of God, there is no sin, no brokenness, no imperfection in God to compromise our experience with him. As our father, he doesn't get it wrong. He doesn't hurt us. He doesn't sin against us. He's the perfect father that all of us desire to have. But none of us have ever had with our earthly fathers. And none of us have ever been as earthly fathers. Now, I was thinking about both sides of the family coin, the good stuff and the ugly stuff, and a recent family excursion popped into my mind. A few weeks ago, I took the kids on one of our daddy kid adventures. An opportunity for the kids and me to disappear into a forest somewhere giving our introverted wife and mother an opportunity to enjoy some peace and quiet and solitude that can be a rare commodity. And I've discovered that you can Google something like beautiful winter waterfalls in central Pennsylvania and find amazing descriptions of magnificent off-the-beaten-path places to explore. So off we went to Sproul State Forest, which is, we found out, in the middle of absolutely nowhere and nothing. With some helpfully specific instructions, we parked the only car in the unplowed gravel parking lot and descended along the Chuck Kuiper Trail into the frozen woods. Now, the imperfect part of my fathering 
was that I vastly underestimated the physical demands required of this hike. It was very cold, the ground was completely covered with inches of snow and ice, the terrain was uneven, and the trail was relatively steep. I did not adequately account for the fact that my six-year-old may have more limited hiking endurance than some of the rest of the gang. The agonizing tears and heartfelt sobbing of my Caleb on our entire return hike did serve the helpful function of scaring off any nearby bobcats, coyotes, or non-hibernating bears in the general area. But it also demonstrated the fallibility of the best of my fatherly intentions. I did not accurately assess what was a reasonable winter hike for my kids. Oops. I should note that Caleb was only comfortable with me talking about, uh, about this um, if I also mentioned his awesome Jedi moves when we got to the icy pathway near the stream. And so very clearly, yes, Caleb, your Jedi moves were awesome. And while he was leaping around like a Jedi, I also had this moment when we reached the absolutely breathtaking waterfalls surrounded by frozen walls of ice and ginormous icicles when my, when my sweet-spirited, kind-hearted Eliza was sobbing. Yes, a lot of children were sobbing on this hike. So Eliza was sobbing out of concern that her little brother in mid-Jedi leap was going to slip on the icy trail and fall into the stream and freeze and die. I may have casually mentioned frostbite and hypothermia earlier in our hike, which only managed to amp up her angst about the very poor decision I had made to take us to this deathly place. But I spoke to Eliza as compassionately as I could to reassure her that as her daddy, and as Caleb's daddy, that I would make sure to take care of them, that I had this whole thing under control, that it was my job and my commitment to care for them and to provide for them. And as I was sharing these sentiments with Eliza, I couldn't help but think that this is the promise we have from our Father God to his family, to his kids, to his church, to us, that he will take care of us, that he has this whole thing under control, that it is his job and his commitment to care for us and to provide for us. That's how a loving father cares for his kids. Now, I didn't promise them that nothing would go wrong or that they couldn't get hurt. In fact, I said to Eliza, if Caleb is out of control, he might slide into the creek and get wet or even knock someone else into the creek. I'm giving him instruction to try to help him stay dry. He might ignore that. And if so, he will experience pain as a result of his choice. But I will carry him back to the car if that's what I need to do. That's my job. That's what I signed on for. See, when you're an Oberholzer kid, your idiot dad may do some foolish things for you. Take you places you probably shouldn't go. Go on a few adventures beyond your current capacity and skill set. That's the earthly imperfect part. But I hope my kids also know that my affection for them and my care for them and my love for them knows no bounds. And I will do whatever it takes to care for them, to prevent them from experiencing pain and suffering in some cases, and to walk with them and to even carry them through their pain and suffering in other cases. See, we're the family of God, his children. His affection for us and his care for us and his love for us knows no bounds. And he will do whatever it takes to care for us, to prevent us from experiencing pain and suffering in some cases, and to walk with us and to even carry us through our pain and suffering in other cases. That's the deal. And when you're part of the church, the family of God, that's the promise you can cling to.
So the church is the body of Christ and the temple of God and the family of God. We've got one last metaphor for today from Ephesians 5. Here's what we read in Ephesians 5, 31 and 32. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. The church is the bride of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. Again, this isn't a metaphor that's isolated to Ephesians. We, th- we see this imagery of the church as the bride, wedded, pun fully intended, wedded to several scriptures, including 2 Corinthians 11, Revelation 19, and Revelation 21. And these many mentions of us as the church, symbolically representing the bride in the great wedding feast, should fill us with such joy and gratitude when we consider that the bridegroom is Christ the savior of the world who came to live among us, to live a perfect life, to teach the most timeless of lessons, to perform the most remarkable of miracles, to die the most meaningful death, and to be raised back to life, to conquer sin and death, and invite us into the victory of eternal life with himself. That is our bridegroom. We, the church, are the bride. And what a great gift. The beauty of all these metaphors is that they bring to life and provide concrete points of reference to what might otherwise be very abstract and esoteric for us to understand. The difficulty of these metaphors is that they bring imperfect points of reference to that which is perfect. The challenge for each of us when we consider this idea of the church as the bride of Christ is that we have to navigate the muck-muck that each of us know when we think about earthly marriage. Many of us look at the marriage of our parents, which was certainly imperfect, may have been completely dysfunctional, may have ended in divorce. And we say, yay, we're the bride of Christ. Many of us look at our own marriages and and I consider the many ways that I'm aware that my love for my bride is pretty shallow and compromised by selfishness. And, And we say, yay, we're the bride of Christ. Some of us are longing for marriage and have not been given the opportunity to receive that particular expression of love and affection. And from that sense of elusive disappointment, we say, yay, we're the bride of Christ. There are a lot of reasons why that metaphor may not immediately do for us and in us what God intends it to do through these inspired words of scripture. But here's what I would encourage you to do today as we wrap up these reflections, to consider even just a moment when you have observed love between a bride and a groom in its purest, most devoted, most loveliest, most encouraging, most heart-swelling form, and just sit with that particular image or moment or experience. Whether it's the opening sequence of Pixar's masterful up or whatever your favorite cinematic marriage moment is, or whether it's something you observed with your parents, or something you you witnessed among your married friends, or something you experienced in your own marriage. Freeze that image in your heart and mind. I couldn't help but remember a conversation I had with my father a few years ago. Not long before he and my mom celebrated their 50th anniversary. My dad and I were driving back from a Phillies game, sitting on the Schuylkill Expressway, obviously creeping along in grotesque traffic jam on my least favorite stretch of road in the universe. With plenty of time in the car, at one point I just asked him, what was his greatest accomplishment? What was he most proud of in his life? I was thinking he probably mentioned some professional award he had received. Without hesitation, without even giving a second thought, his immediate response was, oh, marrying your mother's the best thing I've ever done. Of all the accomplishments that he had made, the degrees he had earned, the respect and honors that he had accrued through decades of being a a beloved teacher and coach and athletic administrator, through all the amazing work he had done as the, the chair of the elder board at our church, as a man who's admired by so many people for good reason, he is a remarkable man. But when asked what his greatest accomplishment was, he said, marrying your mother's the best thing I've ever done. Now I wonder, 
if we were to ask Christ what his greatest accomplishment was, what he would say. You know, he could say creating the universe. Well done, sir, that works. He could say a sinless life. That's not too shabby. He could say saving humanity through death on the cross and the resurrection. Indeed, quality work there. But all of that was done with a very specific purpose in mind, for the sake of his bride. I wonder if we were to ask Christ what his greatest accomplishment was, whether he might not simply say, oh, 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 marrying my bride, the church, is the best thing I've ever done. My friends, we have the opportunity and the invitation to live every day as the beloved ones of Jesus. We are his bride and his children, his family, and his temple, and his body. Now, we are also an absolute mess, right? We foul up the works like it's our job. Every one of us is a selfish, sinful, broken, wounded goober who takes these promises and snarls them up. But God's commitment to us as his body and his temple and his family and his bride, it is not contingent upon our behavior. Now, he loves us enough to call us out of our sin, to call us to obedience and righteousness and sanctification, to prompt us to pursue the kingdom way instead of our own way, to empower us through his spirit to give us all we need for life and godliness. And as we muddle our way forward, increasing in holy living, but imperfectly so, he walks with us and embraces us and loves us more deeply than we can ever know. We are his church, his body, his temple, his children, his family, his bride. Not because of what we have done, but because of what he has done. May those words fill us today and through this new year of 2022 with encouragement and hope and joy and peace and comfort. And may those words challenge us to pursue him in such a way that we might be increasingly worthy to be called the temple and the family of God, the body and the bride of Christ. Join me as we pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for, for your word. We thank you for these amazing word pictures that, that you've written down for us to be able to process the depths of your love and affection for us for the many ways and slices and flavors of how you care for us, of how your compassion is poured out upon us. Lord, maybe one, one of these metaphors resonates in a particular heart, mind, and soul today. Lord, would you allow individuals to press in where they need to press in to receive the gift of these promises, of these declarations of who we are. Again, not because of what we've done, but because of what you've done and who you've created us to be as your church. What a great gift, blessing, and privilege. And so we thank you for it all. And we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.